Good morning, Castle Oaks, in person, online. Um, my name is Dave, and no, I do not know where Phil Vaughn is this morning. <laughs> Usually he tells me when he asks me to schedules me to come and, and speak for you guys, uh, but this, this time he didn't, so I, I really have no idea where he is. He could be on his couch at home uh, engaging with us online, along with a bunch of other folks. He could be on the roof. Uh, he could be uh, one of you in disguise, for all I, I know. And so I, uh, wait, you're not Phil Vaughn, are you, ma'am? Okay, all right, just, just checking. I, he's crafty that way, so I can't tell. Um, but as I say, my name is Dave, and I've been a pastor and pulpit supplier um, all up and down the front range uh, lately, and I watch way too many movies. And maybe you're like that too, although I think, you know, my wife would say, hey, you watch a lot of movies. I say, it's art, come on. And it's like, okay. And I was thinking about this. Do you have a favorite movie? Like if I asked, could you pinpoint one? Say, oh yeah, yeah, this is absolutely my favorite movie. Some people can't say that. I can't, but I can sort of qualify it if you really pin me down. My favorite movie that does not feature James Bond or Luke Skywalker <laughs> is the 1966 Academy Award winner for Best Picture, Director, and Actor, A Man for All Seasons. How many of you, by show of hands, have seen A Man for All Seasons? I didn't think so. Okay. <laughs> Let me commend this to you. Yes, I know this movie came out way before many of us were born. I know this movie is a British film that's set in 16th century England. I know this movie has no uh, car chases or superheroes or blue-skinned aliens in it. But, despite all that, it's terrific. It tells a true story, a story of Sir Thomas More, played by Paul Schofield, and it's a true story that has a huge impact on church history and Western history. So it's kind of a history lesson, and it's really, really, really well done. All right, so Sir Thomas More is the star of this story, and he's a real guy. He lived in England in the 1500s, and he had the good fortune of being named Chancellor of England and the misfortune of being Chancellor of England under King Henry VIII. But when the movie opens, uh, Sir Thomas More is not yet Chancellor of England. Chancellor of England is Cardinal Wolsey, uh, played very memorably by Orson Welles. And Cardinal Wolsey has a problem. You see, a little backstory, if you know your English history, this is familiar to you. Henry VIII was married to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who was the daughter of the king of Spain. And Henry and Catherine had been unable to produce an heir. They hadn't been able to have kids, or not kids that lived very long. And furthering complicating things, Henry's eye had started to wander uh, away from Catherine, his wife, toward Anne Boleyn, whom he wanted to divorce Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn. If you know your English history, you know how well that's going to turn out. So, Henry the king, though, he can't just simply just divorce his wife because she's the daughter of the king of Spain. It's a political marriage. If he divorces her, there could be political fallout that could be very damaging for the throne of England, and there could even be warfare involved. And so he comes to his chancellor, Cardinal Wolsey, Henry VIII does, and he says, you need to secure me a divorce from my wife Catherine, or else... I will secure your body a divorce from your head. So, Cardinal Wolsey has a problem. 
And to help him with his problem, he calls Sir Thomas More into his office. This is an early scene in the movie. That's back of uh, Thomas More's head there. They're, they're having a conversation. He needs Thomas's help because Thomas is a man of integrity, a man of wisdom, and a man of political influence in the kingdom. And so he calls Thomas in and gets right to it. He says, Thomas, the king needs a son. What are you going to do about it? And Sir Thomas says, well, I'm quite sure the king needs no advice from me on what to do about it. But Wolsey doesn't want to play games. He says, Thomas, if the king dies without an heir, we'll have dynastic wars again. Civil war in England, bloodshed. The king needs an heir. Now, what are you going to do about it? And Sir Thomas says, I pray for it daily. I pray for it daily. But Cardinal Wolsey, even though he's a churchman, an official in the Church of England, is not impressed by this. He sneers at Sir Thomas. He says, prayer, prayer. Henry is king, Catherine is queen. She's as barren as a brick. What are you going to do? Pray, pray for a miracle? And Sir Thomas says, there are precedents. One of my favorite lines in the movie. There are precedents. And you know, there are. What do you pray for daily? What are you praying for these days? Are you praying for a miracle? You know, I've been a pastor a long time. I don't know a lot of you very well. But I'll bet you there's someone in the room or someone online who's praying for a miracle today. Maybe a financial miracle. You might be praying for a financial miracle. Say, Lord, you know, I've done everything I know to do. I, I can't make ends meet. Uh, my job is, is tenuous. I've lost my job. I, you know, I was counting on some income. That's not coming through. Lord, I need you to provide. I need a financial miracle. Or maybe you're praying for a relational miracle. Someone in the room, someone online. Saying, I'm trying to be reconciled, Lord, with this person that I care about very deeply, and, and, and they're not having it. They're, they're distancing themselves from me. And I've done everything I know to do. I, I've said everything I know to say. I, I'll, I'll do anything, Lord. I want to be reconciled to this person that I care about. And they're just pulling away. And I can't change their heart. I can't, saying the right thing doesn't help. I, I need a relational miracle. And I'm willing to bet money, although I'm not a betting man, that someone in this room or online today is probably praying for a medical miracle. You have this diagnosis, it's bad news. Or a, a loved one has had a diagnosis, it's bad news. They've undergone treatment, hasn't seemed to help a whole lot. The doctors don't seem all that encouraged. So you're praying for a medical miracle. Now, we know from personal experience, miracles are not very common. But we also know from the Bible that there are precedents. And one of them, one of the precedents, is a delightful passage from Acts chapter 12. If you have a Bible with you in book form or on your device, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 1. We're going to look at this chapter today and hopefully 
have a really important takeaway for those who pray. <clears throat> Acts 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Let's carry the one. Yeah, that's 16. Okay. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. All right, let me give you a little back, back story here. Luke, the author of Acts, has been recording one miracle after another in the life of the early church. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ on Pentecost. Samaritans have come to faith. An Ethiopian has come to faith. Saul of Tarsus, later Paul the Apostle, an enemy of the church, sworn enemy of the church and the work of God through Jesus, has come to faith in Christ. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Lives are being changed. The kingdom of God is on the march. But here, in Acts 12, there's a terrible setback. The execution of the Apostle James and the imprisonment of the Apostle Peter. Two leaders, two pillars in the church at Jerusalem, a young church. Herod Agrippa I is a grandson of Herod the Great from the Christmas narratives. And he's responsible for this double-barreled assault on the work of God. And Herod puts Peter in prison. He intends to bring him out uh, for public trial, what today we would call a show trial. After Passover, following Peter's show trial would come his execution. What a grave crisis facing this young church. Talk about a leadership crisis. One apostle is taken down and executed. Another is imprisoned and awaiting execution. This situation looks bleak, even hopeless, no possibility of reprieve or escape. And in this corner, we have the world weighing in with the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. In this corner, we have the church weighing in with prayer. Come on. What a huge mismatch. It's like this ragtag rebel fleet against the Death Star of the Galactic Empire. It's like two tiny little hobbits against all the dark forces of Mordor. No chance, right? I told you I watched too many movies. But prayer is the one power the powerless possess. Prayer is the one power the powerless possess. When we who are powerless tap into the power of prayer, God shows up. Important word we need to catch here in verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was what? Earnestly. Everybody say earnestly. Earnestly praying to God for him. That adverb is a Greek adverb, ektanos, that in English we translate earnestly. And it literally means stretched out. Stretched out. Out. It pictures the ideas of hands stretching out to God in desperate prayer. It's the same word that Luke uses in describing the way Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night he would be betrayed. It gives the impression of just wholehearted, urgent pleading to God. 
And so Peter is fast asleep in prison in the middle of the night. The church was engaged in earnest, stretched out prayer on his behalf. Have you ever prayed like that? Emotionally, spiritually, if not necessarily physically stretched out. Have you ever prayed that way? Been fervent, even desperate in prayer? It's like saying, God, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm about to step off a cliff into a fog bank. Please, Lord, please have a big net ready to catch me. Stretched out prayer. I was in a Bible study one time with some students, and uh, there was a, an exchange student there from a Middle Eastern country, and he came to this Bible study, but he was a Muslim. And uh, it was very interesting to him to watch us and ask, participate, ask questions. But one of the things we did at the Bible study is we opened in prayer, and we took prayer requests. We prayed for some needs that we're, we were all aware of, wanted God to intervene in. And he, he stopped, our, our exchange student, he stopped us. He said, wait, I don't understand this. Why do you start with prayer? And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, where I come from, you, you have a problem to solve. You, you, you work to solve your problem. You, you, you try things you know to try. You, you ask people for help if you need help. And then uh, when you exhausted all other options, then that's, that's when you would then pray. Because there's nothing else to do. And I said, you're learning how to be a good American really quick. Because we feel like Prayer is a terribly precocious second best, precarious second best, right? I mean, as long as we can fuss and rush about and fret, as long as we can lend a hand, well, then we have hope, right? But if we have to fall back on God, well, we're can-do people. We don't, have to, we don't have to fall back on that. We don't have to rely on that. How many bookstores in America have a self-help section? Answer, all of them. In fact, I think some self-help sections are becoming autonomous and just kind of going outside without the bookstores now. There's so many books on self-help because Americans think, I can do this myself. We can do this ourselves. And if we have to get to a point where we actually have to ask God to intervene, oh, well, then we're really in trouble. I have an uncomfortable question that I've asked myself and posed to other congregations. How many leaders in the church in America today could do what they're doing solely in their own power without anybody noticing? How many churches could do the ministries the churches are doing in America today without the Holy Spirit and things would be exactly the same? But see, there's an important lesson to learn here from this advert. God shows up when his people stretch out. God shows up when his people stretch out in earnest prayer. I'll prove it to you. Verse six. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Foolproof, right? Peter's not getting out of this. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing 
was really happening, he thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. It's interesting that all these dramatic details that Luke includes seem to emphasize God's intervention and Peter's passivity. Peter hadn't planned this. Peter was sleeping. The angel has to nudge him awake and tell him how to get dressed, and Peter doesn't even think it's real. But God shows up when his people stretch out. And picture it, right? It's a dark dungeon. Stone walls, stone floor. It's uncomfortable, dark. The only sounds of soldiers snoring, maybe the occasional clink, clink, clank of chains. And suddenly, there's a bright, brilliant light. An angel appears. And the angel says, Behold, Peter, I have come... Behold, Peter, I have come. Peter, wake up. (laughs) Peter, behold, I have come. Peter, Peter, get up. Peter, Peter, listen. I have come so that, no, 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 Peter, 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 Peter. stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up, come on. Peter, wake up. Right, look, Peter, okay, all right, look, Peter, sandal, here, put your sandal on, Peter, that's right. Other sandal, get your other sandal, put it on, Peter, come on, come on, okay. Peter said, no, 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 Peter, stand up. Look, 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 your cloak. Peter, put your cloak on. Here, here, I've got it here. Okay, all right, all right, turn around. Okay, right arm, good, okay. Left arm, that's good. All right, good. That's the nice little apostle. Peter, okay, Peter, stay awake. Peter, look at me, look at me. You follow me, okay? All right, let's go, right? Yeah, they're guards, that's right. We're gonna walk right past, come on. We're walking right past the guards, that's right. Past the guards, right. Iron gate, I see it, it's gonna open. There you go, it opens. All right, follow me down the street, come on. Let's go. They walk out, and then the angel leaves him. And then it dawns on Peter. Oh, gosh, I'm free. It's a miracle that I had nothing to do with. God showed up when his people stretched out. No plan, no preparation, only prayer. It's a theme that Luke gives us again and again and again in his gospel and in Acts. Luke 1, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared. Luke 3, as Jesus was praying, heaven was open. Luke 9, Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. And who shows up? Moses and Elijah from beyond the grave. Then in Acts, Acts 4, after they prayed, the place was shaken. Acts 9, ask for a man named Saul, for he is praying. Acts 10, Peter's in Joppa praying And God gives him a vision. Again and again and again, God shows up when his people stretch out. God shows up when his people stretch out. Now, it's common in applying this passage, focus on God's deliverance of Peter in answer to the church's stretched out prayer and sort of slide past the non-deliverance of James, who had been executed. So how do we make sense of those two events? Well, I think the fact that Luke mentions it here, he does that to remind us of God's sovereignty 
when we think about and ask for God's help in time of trouble. Yes, God shows up, but we need to leave it up to God to determine his will for what is best. The question for us is, not will God show up, but will we remain stretched out in prayer, regardless of the outcome of the crisis we faced? God shows up, will we stretch out? But there's some encouragement about prayer coming up that we really shouldn't miss. Verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, they said, it must be his angel. And this reflected the first century Jewish belief that you had a guardian angel and your guardian angel looked like you. So that's what they think. It must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Isn't this a goofy little piece of the story to keep in? I mean, what are we supposed to do with this? If I was making this story up, I'd have left this part out. Which is actually kind of a hint, a reason why we can trust the Bible. Because we have stuff like this in it, right? If people were making up stories to put in the Bible, the church was making up stories, they wouldn't put stuff like that in there. Because they don't look good. Right? But this is, this is one of the goofiest, funniest little parts of Scripture in the New Testament I can think of. We all think that Scripture is, well, Scripture is not funny, it's, it's Scripture. I beg to differ. This is hilarious. Think about it, right? Oh, oh Lord, please deliver our brother, the Apostle Peter. We have no hope but you, Lord. Please, please show up, Lord, in response to our stretched out prayer. Lord, please deliver Peter from the clutches of Herod. Lord, we don't know what to do. Please deliver Peter, Lord. Please deliver. Only you can intervene. Only you can deliver him. <gasps> you guys, no, really, it's really him. It's really him. He's right outside. I can see him. He's right there. Rhoda, you're out of your mind. No way he could. All right, break it up, fellas. Come on. You say you see Peter outside? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's right out there. Must be his angel. Must have killed him early. And then they let, they finally go to the door. They let Peter in. The answer to their prayers that he didn't think, that they didn't think was going to be answered. Right? Can you tell me in this passage, all of Acts 12, where is the example of great faith? Who has great faith in Acts 12 for us to be encouraged by and emulate? Well, not Peter. Peter was sound asleep. Peter's very passive. Peter didn't even think this was real. And then the the church that was praying for him was earnestly praying. But when their prayer were answered, they they revealed to us they didn't really think God was going to answer that prayer. They didn't really believe 
It's an encouragement to me that God shows up when his people stretch out. And also, God shows up when his people fall short. God shows up when his people stretch out. And God shows up when his people fall short. Every option was more plausible to them except what they were praying for. You know, I've heard some sermons, maybe you've heard some sermons that use this passage to teach that, you know, we should pray believing our prayers will be answered. We should pray with expectation, pray with faith. And I, okay, yeah, I agree. I think that's true. But that can't be Luke's point from this passage. God answered the prayers of his people even though they didn't believe he was gonna. So what do we take from this? Well, God shows up when his people fall short. I take encouragement from this passage that God answers my prayers even when my faith isn't perfect. God answers our prayers even when our faith isn't perfect, even when our theology isn't perfect. I think the point is that God honored their prayer even though they didn't have great faith. I think the fact that our prayers get answered says far less about the quality of our praying than it does about the quality of our God. He's a God who hears, he's a God who cares, he's a God who delivers, he's a God who gives hope, he's a God who shows up. And I know this from personal experience. This is my mom, Ann Star Minton Ward, a delightful mom, loving mom, uh, and beloved by many uh, friends and, and family. In the summer of 1992, at the age of 49, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. It was not a total shock because her mother had also had breast cancer. Her sister also had breast cancer. But it was a cause for great prayer in our family, in our church, and among all our friends. In one week, mom underwent three surgeries to rid her body of this cancer. We prayed, we prayed, we prayed. We stretched out in prayer, God, please deliver my mom. And through the surgeries and post-surgical treatments, she was delivered, cancer-free, in 1992. Then, in 2005, I remember very clearly, mom called me, told me, cancer's back. Four spots showed up on a scan, one on her liver, one on her femur, two others, the cancer had spread. And so what did we do? We did not give up. We rallied our family and friends to prayer. And people up and down the eastern seaboard were praying for Star Ward. Yes, my mom's name Star Ward. I always thought that was kind of fun. And in the December, that was August, she told us cancer's back. In December, she went in for another scan. Cancer was gone. Couldn't find it. All the spots, gone. Was it surgery this time? Was it chemo this time? Was it radiation this time? Nope, she didn't do any of those things. This time, it was just the grace of God responding to the prayers of people stretched out, pleading on behalf of my mom. Then in January of 2015, cancer came back again. 
April 2015, she went to be with Jesus. By my way of reckoning, God gave us, God gave me 22 extra years of my mom here on earth. Her life was answered prayers. It's an encouragement to me that Luke describes prayer as earnest in spite of the fact they obviously weren't convinced God was really going to answer. In my life, there are times where I do pray earnestly, but the truth of the matter is, it's hard to see how God's going to work this thing out. But I'm glad to know God still answers my prayers, even when my faith is imperfect or incomplete. And he does that for you too. It's not to downplay the importance of faith. Uh, Faith is unquestionably important in prayer. Our faith grows when we see God answer prayers, we hear about God's answer to other people's prayers. We can still pray earnestly while our faith is under construction because we pray to a great, big, wonderful God. God shows up when his people stretch out and God shows up when his people fall short. God is not afraid of big jobs. Listen to how Luke wraps up this chapter. In the morning... There was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. No surprise there. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Mm. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, and one of those great Bible names that you never hear people named after, trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. I think I speak for all of us when I say, Ew. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Acts chapter 12 opens. James having been killed, Peter's in prison, Herod's triumphant. Acts 12 closes with Herod dead, Peter free, the word of God triumphant. That's a really good chapter. So it leads me to this question. In light of all this, what's the biggest prayer you've never dared pray? What is the biggest prayer you've never dared pray because you thought, that's too outrageous? God would never do that. I can't presume to ask God to do something like that. What's the biggest prayer you've never dared to pray? Often I think we're afraid to pray for big things because... Well, our faith wavers. Well, their faith wavered, and God still showed up. What could you pray for? You could pray for the salvation of someone who seems far from God. You could pray for the witness of Castle Oaks Covenant Church to transform Castle Rock, to transform the front range, transform the state, transform our world. You could pray for an entire nation's to repent before God and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some would say, what? 
You want to pray for a miracle? There are precedents. There are precedents. This coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which in the church calendar marks the start of Lent, which is a season preceding, running up to Holy Week and Easter. I know Phil Vaughn has told me that um, you guys have been talking about, he's been teaching about, and you guys have been practicing different prayer practices, like the examine, some other prayers that you've been doing. I want to commend to you as a church family to stretch out together in prayer like you've never done before. Come to this Ash Wednesday service and let that be a start of a really special, set-apart, powerful Lenten season for you. You as people and you as a church. Yes, pray on our own, pray as a family, but let's also come together as a church family and stretch out to our Lord and pray for things we've never dared pray for before. Theologian Karl Barth said, to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. So my prayer is that y'all will stretch out together in new, wonderful, powerful ways. So let me pray for you right now. Gracious and mighty God, you who are always at work, you who are doing things behind the scenes that we have no idea, you who love us with a love greater than we deserve, you who love this world, though it is undeserving. Lord, I pray that we would be a people of greater prayer, better prayer, but just prayer, period. People believing that you are there, people believing that you hear, people believing that you are inclined to act on our behalf, on behalf of your kingdom, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Amen.